Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Truth Nation podcast. My name is Bill Bodner. With me is El Jefe, Mark Garrett, also known as the Chief. What's happening, Mark? How are you? That's El Jefe retired. Yeah. And, uh, good to see you, Bill. All well, good listen, here. Hey, here's, the, here's the reality, Mark. You and I both know this. Once you're retired, you ain't the El Jefe anymore. Oh, I, 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 I was talking it. to a buddy of mine yeah. the other day, and, and I asked him a question, and he said he's been retired 10 years, and he said, let me talk to my wife. He said, I haven't made a decision in 10 years. So, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> Hey, as you can see, I'm channeling my my inner Miami Vice today. I was going to say, I'm in Florida. You're in California, but you look more like a Floridian than I do. It's, True. It's pretty awesome. True. Hey, what I wanted to talk today about, and I know I know you want to talk about it too, it's this whole premise of, I call it legislation by memo. It's where, hey, maybe best to start with a little civics class reminder for everybody. Three branches of government. The legislative, legislative branch is supposed to be the branch that makes laws. That's Congress, Senate, House of Representatives, executive branch, that's the president and all the federal agencies, and the judicial branch, Supreme Court, all the other courts, the, the checks and balances. Unfortunately, what I think has been happening here in uh, the past number of years, and I'll get into a couple specific instances, is when we elect people in the legislative branch, and they are unable to act when they are ineffective, when they can't pass laws, the executive branch steps in and really creates a law by writing a memo. We see it from the White House, executive orders issued by the White House, Mark. But we also see it in my experience, working at DEA for 30 plus years, we see it in the Department of Justice when the Attorney General just decides to put out a memo and they will call it a, quote, policy memo. But the reality is it's a direction to personnel on what laws are going to be enforced and what laws are not going to be enforced. And in my opinion, that's not the way government's supposed to work. The executive branch should not be deciding what laws are enforced, what laws are not enforced. That's where you lead. That's where you come into problems when you have to separate or uneven application of the laws, because in some districts, they're deciding to follow the memorandum and some districts, they, they aren't. And it creates, it really creates a big mess. And again, I think it's based on government's inability to pass laws. All in my opinion, the government now, their answer to everything is just throwing money at it. There's really not a lot of innovation. And um, boy, when a memo is when one person can write a memo that changes a law that should be a troubling thing to people in this country. So I think my first experience, Mark, and, I, and I'll talk about this just because it's a good example of what happened. It, there's a document in federal law enforcement, or especially drug law enforcement, it's called the Cole Memo. And this was a memo that was written in the, the Obama administration, 2013. And no matter where you come in on the whole marijuana debate, a reminder to everyone, believe it or not, marijuana is still illegal by federal law. It was legalized in California, where I live, in 2016. Florida, Mark, where's Florida at? With That's a good question. I, I haven't even researched. You I've don't partake, so, so you don't care, right? No, I don't partake. And I've been, so, I've been so high on freedom, I haven't even looked at the stuff like that. It's a really good question. I, I, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look that up after we get done with the show today. So, so anyway, back to the Cole memo, what happened was 
Although, by the way, I know they do yeah. have dispensaries here. So you could, but beyond that, I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The politicians were either afraid to act on marijuana or they couldn't come to an agreement on what to do about marijuana. So I think it became frustrating for everybody. So rather than force Congress to do something, to create, if they want to reform it, create reform. If you don't want to reform it, if you want to leave it as is, then enforce the law that's on the books and that was passed by Congress. What uh, Deputy Attorney General James Cole did is he wrote a memo and he talked about when marijuana laws were going to be enforced and when they weren't going to be enforced. And just to talk about a couple points that were in this memo, one of them was he said, we will enforce federal marijuana, federal marijuana laws to prevent revenue from the sale of marijuana from going to crim criminal enterprises, gangs, and cartels. In the state of California right now, all the revenue from illegal marijuana goes to that. That's the bottom line. And believe it or not, it's Chinese organized crime, Chinese cr organized crime groups that are doing all the growing now in California. That might be a change since you left. But again, they're creating additional hurdles here, right? And this is something we'll come back to in a little bit, but they're adding traditional hurdles that are not in the codified law. So Congress didn't say that was part of the law when they wrote the law and when they passed the law and when the president signed it. Uh, another thing, prevent marijuana laws will be enforced to prevent the diversion of marijuana from states where it is legal under state law to some states where it is not. Listen, that happens every day in California. There's a ton, literally tons of marijuana grown in California goes out of state. It goes to other states where marijuana is illegal. In fact, uh, the last DEA agent that was killed in the line of duty, he was killed by someone who was smuggling marijuana from California to another state in the Southeast where it was not legal. He was on an Amtrak train armed with, with a gun on an Amtrak train. And uh, they were doing just some re routine searches and the, the agent was murdered. So, so how do we let this happen? And what effect does it have? And probably like jumping ahead a little bit to, to one that really blew my mind. And hey, those people that have never worked for the federal government, when the federal government puts out a memo, like in the days right before Christmas, they're trying to bury something. Mm -hmm. That's the bottom line. When it's the holiday season and it's Friday afternoon or whatever, and the, and the federal government does a press release, they're just hoping it doesn't get picked up. They're hoping nobody sees it and it goes away. In December of 22, right, in the midst of the most deadly drug epidemic the country has ever seen, fentanyl being the overwhelming majority cause of that drug epidemic, Attorney General Merrick Garland put a memo out, and this memo is a public document. Anybody can go look at it, www.justice.gov. It's on there. The name of the document, there you go. The name of the document is Additional Department Policies Regarding Charging, Pleas, and Sentencing in Drug Cases. And what this did was talked about cases where there is a minimum mandatory quantity of drugs. And so people understand what that is. That is. Years ago, lawmakers created a law that put specific quantities of drugs uh, on the books as part of the statute. And it said, if you are charged with possession with intent to distribute of this quantity of drugs, 
the minimum mandatory penalty will be 10 years in prison. And just to give an idea about what those quantities are for fentanyl, if I told you, Mark, 4,000 fentanyl pills, right? So that, that would be about 400 grams of fentanyl, 4,000 fentanyl pills. That's a 10-year charge. To me, that's a pretty significant quantity the general did in this memo. And, and here's a quote from the memo. Prosecutors should decline to charge the quantity necessary to trigger a, a mandatory minimum sentence. And here's my belief. My belief is this administration, for whatever reason, does not is not big on accountability. They don't want to incarcerate people for drug crimes, even though they don't, and it's surprising to me that at this point in time, with more Americans dying than ever before, they could make this decision to put out a memorandum and uh, instruct prosecutors not to file these charges. Now, and forgive me, Mark, if I'm you know a little bit all over the place here at the beginning, but there, there are some instances when the government says they will still file a minimum mandatory charge. And I think it's important to talk about these because later we're going we're gonna to talk about a video uh, of Merrick Garland when he was testifying before Congress. And some of the things he said, just in my opinion, don't add up. So here's what they said. The if the defendant does not have a significant managerial role in the trafficking of significant quantities of drugs, so what that requires now, so when this law was passed, right, when this law was passed by Congress and, si and signed by the president, the, the, the lawmaker said, if you have 400 grams of fentanyl, you should do 10 years in prison if you're convicted. That should be the min minimum mandatory charge. Now, the attorney general has added on to that additional facts that need to be proven. What does that do? That takes more time for an investigation because you have to actually uncover different facts to prove these additional allegations. A second one was the defendant does not have significant ties to a large-scale criminal organization or a cartel or to a violent gang. Everyone that's trafficking in a minimum mandatory quantity of drugs has those associations, right? right. And right. I've heard you talk about bail in the past. In the federal system, these minimum mandatory cases are called presumptive cases meaning that when you are charged with this minimum mandatory quality of drugs, the presumption is you're a flight risk. The presumption is you're a danger to the community and you would be held without bail. When this law was made, the reason why they fashioned this law is because they came up with a quantity of drugs that they felt was significant enough that the presumption is if you get caught with this quantity of drugs, you have significant ties to a large-scale criminal organization. The presumption is that if you get caught with this large quantity of drugs, you have a significant managerial role or some level of responsibility in that criminal organization. And they did that to reduce the burden on law enforcement and on the judicial system and actually make it function more efficiently. That's why there are minimum mandatory sentences. They picked quantities of drugs that they said, if you're dealing in this quantity of drugs, it's a presumption that all these other boxes are checked and we're going to make the Justice Department work efficiently and smoothly and you're going to get charged with this 10-year charge. The Attorney General said no more. He, he instructed prosecutors not to do that and he wants them 
to only charge these minimum mandatory cases when these additional factors are proactively met. And again, I'm going to say it, that makes the system less efficient. It takes more work. It takes more time. And in a time of such a, a drug crisis, I don't understand why we would do that. So some other quotes from this memo, prosecutors should not automatically charge the quantity necessary to trigger the minimum mandatory. Right there, the attorney general of the United States, the chief law enforcement officer, he's instructing prosecutors to not follow the law. This is a law passed by Congress and signed by the presidents. And that's on uh, page two. He's, he's asking telling prosecutors they shouldn't automatically charge this just because the, the quantity of drugs here. And then the, the most troubling thing here is on page four, Mark, and I highlighted it in red. And I'll talk a little bit about this, and then I'll, I'll get your thoughts on at least this particular memo and the overall premise of uh, executive order um, and legislation by memo. Whatever the ultimate sentencing recommendation, prosecutors must always be candid with the court, the probation office, and the public as to the full extent of the defendant's conduct and culpability, including the type and quantity of drugs involved in the offense and the quantity attributable to the, to the, to the defendant's role in the offense, even if the charging document lacks such specificity. I'm going to give you the translation of what that means. That means Prosecutor, he's telling prosecutors, don't lie about the quantity. And people lose their mind. Well, where does it say that? He says, you prosecutors must always be candid. In other words, always tell the truth. What he says at the end, even if the charging document lacks such specificity, he's saying, don't include information about the drug quantity if it's going to trigger a 10-year minimum mandatory case. So file a case less than the best case the government has because we don't want to incarcerate people. When, when the attorney general, and, and I don't know, Mark, let, let, let me actually, let, let me get your thoughts on just this particular case before we get into the bigger discussion. In, in a minute, I want to show the video of the attorney generals answering questions about this memo because that kind of brings up uh, some more questions about who's creating these policies and what his knowledge is that all... Uh, uh, in detail about all these policies. But but what are your thoughts when you see something like this in the midst of a huge fentanyl crisis in this country and, and the head prosecutor in the United States is writing a memo telling prosecutors, don't lie about the quantity, but don't charge the quantity if it's going to be, if it's going to be a quantity that triggers a 10 year case. My thought, my number one thought, Bill, about this is chaos. Mm -hmm. Because this memo, as you said, and we're going to watch the video of, of the attorney general, and we're going to talk about some other examples here, but this memo does not stand alone in the mentality of this attorney general or this administration. It is part of a larger, a larger set of examples that clearly indicate a mindset of chaos and breaking down the community. I'm sorry if I sound grandiose or over the top with this, but this AG is part of the same cabal. It's the same ilk that is, is a champion of open borders of not prosecuting the people who are bringing this crap across the border. They know that the, 
that part of this or it's being manufactured in in china they know where this stuff is coming from they know the cartels obviously are making billions and billions of dollars through this but they are engaged in stuff like this that circumventing the federal law passed by our legislatures through a memo and the question is why would any one person or any administration engage in this behavior now, because I want to give you plenty of time to present all the information you have, because it's absolutely, it's amazing. And, and I have, of course, my two cents to throw in there mm -hmm. as well. But it's a big question. Why would anyone be of this mindset? Why are the borders open? Why is the attorney general circumventing the, the laws passed by Congress to go after? And like you said, the level, the quantity of drugs, that's exactly right. In other words, this is presumptive. This assumes that, like you said, Bill, all these other boxes are checked, that these people were engaged in managerial and all these things, all these impactful elements on society have already been addressed. If they are trafficking this quantity of drugs or a certain drug, this memo is specifically designed to circumvent all of that. And the question is why. So with that said, I, I want to turn it back over to you. This memo was one of the things I found most disturbing my last year on the job. So I get a little fired up talking about it. And I, I think maybe that emotion showed through that opening 10, 10 minutes there. But to go back and, and talk about this, first off, here's some inside story. The DEA, the lead federal drug law enforcement agency, works in within the Department of Justice, right? The Department of Justice is the umbrella uh, federal agency where DEA, FBI, some of the law enforcement agencies are into it. The DEA was not consulted about mm -hmm. what impact this memo would have on drug crime and on fentanyl trafficking and on fentanyl caused deaths. And what I would say is in an ideal world, and I think you'd agree from a leadership perspective, you consult and you listen. So in an ideal world, the, the attorney general of the United States consults DEA and says, hey, and be and please be honest about it because his reasoning doesn't make sense. We'll get into the video. We'll talk about his reasoning. It doesn't make sense. Consult DEA, be honest about it, and say why you want to step away from minimum mandatory prosecutions. Mm -hmm. If you can't do that in a less than perfect world, right? at least advise the agents, at least advise, advise your people and say, ladies and gentlemen, DEA, we're making a change. We don't, this administration, this Department of Justice doesn't believe in minimum mandatory, minimum mandatory sentences. We're making a change. We're going in this direction. We need you to be on board with this. That didn't happen either. This memo came out and that was the first, again, that was, when this memo was published, it was just put on their website, that was the first anyone in DEA had heard of this drastic change. And again, I'll say it, DEA is the lead federal drug law enforcement agency to not consult them for the Department of Justice, the Attorney General, to not consult them on this, it's baffling to me. Um, Bill, let, let me, yeah. I, I question for you. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so important for people to really consider what you said about no consultation, not mm -hmm. even an advisement, the level of arrogance, the level of, of hubris that an individual or any number of individuals possess to do something like this with 
without consulting the lead agency regarding the memo, regarding the enforcement of the information that's in there, did any, I have a question for you, did any, did the U.S. attorney in your jurisdiction consult you at all? Did, did, was there any conversation after the fact? Okay, after the fact, there was. And my apologies. The, no, that, that, that's such, yeah. Mark, that's a great question. So after the fact, and again, this is almost a year ago, right? This is almost a year ago. This, or, or actually it is about a year ago, this memo was issued. After the fact, we spoke to, I spoke to personally, the U.S. attorney in the district in Los Angeles and said, hey, what impact is this going to have? And hey, I don't want, he was a bit shocked that this came out, right? And he said, hey, we'll put something together in writing and give it to you guys to show you how we're going to implement this. That never happened. That never happened. Now, why didn't that happen? In my opinion, no one is going to put anything on paper right. that talks about this because I think that I think the people that, as often happens, I think the people that actually do the work, they realize that this is troubling. This is not the right move, and they're stepping back from it, and they almost like they don't want to be associated with it. So, although there was talk about it, about giving specific guidelines as to how this would be implemented and changes that this would require it was never done but it definitely has had an impact because i can tell you firsthand that and again it comes from the unfortunately people at the department they're not the experts in drug trafficking so the way drug trafficking works right now a lot of the people that are higher up in the organization leaders organizers they're actually hiding out in mexico and they'll to, to simplify it a little bit mark They'll send someone across the border with a million fentanyl pills. And we actually had someone, we set up a deal with them. And I don't I think it was 40,000 pills we bought. The deal went through and the federal prosecutor citing this memo said, hey, I think this person would only be a courier. I don't think they would qualify to get prosecuted. I don't know that we would take this case because they're only a courier. They're not a manager, leader, organizer. And the reality is these people with these huge quantities are significant. They, they carry significant trust with the organization, right? They're important figures in the organization. Those are the people we need to charge and lean on, get their cooperation to go after those people that are higher up. So I can tell you firsthand, this memo did have a, a chilling impact on some of the investigations we were doing in LA. And it's interesting because I had used that same word, arrogant. And I equate it in your world. Imagine if someone in Sacramento was going to, or not was going to, changed a policy that was going to have a drastic impact on how you enforce the, the roads on the, I'm sorry, the laws on the roads in California with, without even consulting you. There is an amount of arrogance there in doing that that is, it's unfortunate, but it's also a little scary because it shows that they're not really worried about what the impact is. Right. It's being done for some ideological reason or some political reason, and they don't really care what the impact is. If you cared what the impact was, Mark, you would ask. Right. If you were interested in how this was going to affect the day-to-day -day job of people mm -hmm. trying to keep the country safe, you would ask the questions. I can tell you I have firsthand knowledge. They did not ask the questions. This was just put out to the public, and the first that anyone heard about it was when it was, when it was published on the website. I talked a bit about, about why there is minimum mandatory sentences and just to hit it again, and you said it, presumptive cases. 
the effort to make the justice system work efficiently, work smoothly. When someone is caught with, with a big quantity of, of drugs, the presumption is that those boxes are checked and that's someone who's worthy of being a, a federal target. When I know I sent you the video of, I think it was Senator John Cornyn, a Republican, I think, out of Texas. He questioned Merrick Garland. Now, I don't know Cornyn's background. I don't know if he was a federal prosecutor. In my opinion, and this was last spring, probably. So this was just, this video is a bit old. This oversight committee hearing took place quite a while ago. But I thought it was interesting because... Cornyn did a good job of honing in what, besides the fact that no one was consulted, he did a good job of honing in on what I think the, the key point of this memo is, and that was, to put it politely, by whose authority are you changing federal law that was passed by Congress and signed by the president? The, and I don't know, maybe now's a good time, Mark, you think, to play that video? So, 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 so what I would tell people is, if you want to read the memo, I'd say read the memo. Again, you can find it on justice.gov. I gave the name of the memo. And then watch the video and see if what's written in that video, I'm sorry, what's written in that memo makes sense with this video you're going to see right here. Specifically, what I want to ask you is about two different memos that you issued to uh, prosecutors with regard to mandatory minimum sentencing. Um, and specifically, in the charging memo, uh, one of the charging memos, you said the proliferation of provisions carrying mandatory minimum sentences has often caused unwarranted, unwarranted disproportionality in sentencing and disproportionately severe sentences. Now, just to be clear, mandatory minimum sentences are statutory, correct? In other words, they're passed by Congress and signed into law by the president. Yes, that's right. And here, you suggest that prosecutors should not enforce or charge with um, charge defendants with a crime which carries a mandatory minimum under certain circumstances, correct? I, I can, uh, that's not exactly, if I can just have a moment to explain, I'm very tell no, Well, if you just answer the question. So um, the memo says specifically, I'll just read it to you. It said, for this reason, charges that subject a defendant to a mandatory minimum sentence should ordinarily be reserved for instances in which the remaining charges uh, would not sufficiently reflect the seriousness of the defendant's criminal conduct, danger to the community, harm to victims, or other considerations uh, outlined above. So basically, your charging memorandum says that prosecutors can exercise their discretion to charge less than the most serious offense because you don't like the mandatory minimum sentence that Congress has, uh, has passed, correct? No, Senator, this is a question of allocating our resources and focusing them on violent crime. Uh, later on, I thought you said I thought you said that uh, your job was to enforce the law with regard to, without regard to policy differences. It's not a question of policy differences. It's a question of the resources. You don't have, have enough money. You don't, don't have, have enough, enough people. people. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough jails. We don't have enough uh, judges. But um, you arrogated to yourself the, the the decision to make policy by saying that in spite of the fact that there are mandatory minimum sentences for many of these drug crimes which are now causing untold death and destruction across America, you're telling prosecutors don't charge those 
that they involve a mandatory minimum sentence. With respect, Senator, the memorandum makes clear that that general analysis doesn't apply in violent crime, doesn't apply in drug trafficking, doesn't apply in cases in which there's injury. So you're cherry-picking which cases that you will charge with a mandatory minimum sentence and not applying them uniformly and charging the most serious crime that can be proven at trial. Apply it to every single crime. We will not be able to focus our resources on violent crime, significant drug trafficking, on the cartels, on the people who are killing people with fentanyl. So the purpose here is to focus the attention of our prosecutors and agents on things that are damaging the American people in the largest possible respect. Okay, the questioning to the AG, prosecutors can use their discretion, and this is what the, the congressman's asking or the senator is asking uh, the AG. He says, prosecutors can use their discretion and not file the most serious offense because you don't like minimum mandatory, minimum, minimum mandatory sentences that Congress has passed. And the attorney general pushed back and said, no, it's about allocation of resources and focusing on violent crime. That is ridiculous, Mark. That is ridiculous because this should be so patently blatant for everyone to see. The attorney general put additional standards on these cases. He put on there additional things that have to be proved. In actuality, this memo makes the, the justice dis, uh, system less efficient. The changes that he's making make it less efficient. He's actually requiring that more work be done and that the process be slowed down. The people that wrote this law did it for the very purpose of making things work smoothly, efficiently, and going after the most significant drug traffickers. This attorney general is the one that has added on all these additional boxes that need to be checked, which means more investigation time, which means prosecutors needing to prove more what are called overt acts that were committed in a conspiracy. So all these things take time and take resources. He put that, I wanna make that clear, the attorney general put that extra burden on there and that is having an effect around the country right now. That's slowing down investigations, it's slowing down prosecutions. And the only thing I could think of, Mark, is that's being done because there's this desire to not incarcerate people for even for significant crimes. I don't know if you want to, if you want to, having watched the video now and read the memo, give your thoughts on, on, are, are you thinking any differently? Did I miss anything on this? No. And, and you summed up the video very well. Look, we can, I think we will talk about Merrick Garland a little more before we leave, but I use this word a lot. So much of this, aside from him, aside from his, his decision to circumvent what the law says, and this is exactly what he did in this memo, there's still a level of leadership that could counteract his behavior. And that's what the U.S. Attorney General was, because look, with the U.S. attorneys, I'm sorry, with the U.S. attorneys, mm -hmm. the various districts, because mm -hmm. at least Merrick Garland, I say at least, I mean, he's a, he's a slime ball to keep it G-rated for this show. He knew he could not specifically say you're not to enforce this law. He couldn't get away that with that. So what he did was he put all these parameters, he put all this gobbledygook in there, like you said, to make it less 
efficient to make it more difficult to get one of these dirtbags prosecuted. You give the great example of the sale of 40,000 or the purchase, 40,000 fentanyl pills, right? Was it 40,000? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. And you had a U.S. attorney saying, well, I don't think we can get him for a blah, blah, because the memo. No, you're still the U.S. attorney and there's nothing in there that says you absolutely can't. Is it you should, you shall, you shouldn't immediately jump to the conclusion, blah, blah, blah. A U.S. attorney has the responsibility to say, hell, 40,000 pills. I'm going to go ahead and prosecute this. I'm going to prosecute it under 21, what the statute is. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go ahead and prosecute. Yep. yep. But I'll tell you right now, it's a lack of leadership because what all those U.S. attorneys know is that Merrick Garland does not want them to prosecute. And most of them, as far as I can tell, don't have the nuts to stand yep. up and say, I'm going to do my freaking job. That's exactly what Merrick Garland wants. And I wouldn't be surprised. I would not be surprised if this guy did have individual conversations with these attorneys. Listen, I know what the memo says. It's these shoulds and yep. should nots and blah, blah, blah. But you know what it means. Don't do it. Don't yep. do it unless that's my opinion about it. So there are still people, there are still times in your life, and we have these positions of authority, you still stand up for what you know is right. By the way, the law's on their side. Yep. Congress is on their side. Stand up. But most people just want to roll over, play dead, and go along the flow. And unfortunately, it looks like it includes some of these use attorneys. You bring up, it reminds me of a funny story, Mark, because shortly after this memo came out, so it would have been January of 23, maybe January, February, there was a case that had already been charged, right? The case had already been charged prior to this memo. There was a warrant in the system. The memo comes out. This defendant gets picked up and makes his appearance in court. And the prosecutor, the assistant U.S. attorney handling this case, was almost apologetic to the judge that this person had been charged and cited this memo. And to the judge's credit, he said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't care what you're talking about. This is a legitimate charge. If you want to drop these charges and charge it different, you go ahead and do it. That, like, the prosecutor is afraid she's going to get in trouble by the judge for charging a crime that's on the books, right? For charging a crime for a, a violation that's on the books. That's a scary, that's a scary situation. And one more thing about the AG talking about the efficiency and we're going to have to make it more efficient. We have to focus on violent crime. The only thing that, that the reason why minimum mandatory cases are so efficient, Mark, is because it's a simple proof of a quantity of drugs. You have a chemist come in, you, you have a chain of custody of the drugs. A chemist comes in and testifies what the weight was, the purity of the drug, et cetera. It's done. There's none of these other artificial hurdles that Merrick Garland uh, put in place that need to be overcome. So again, I'll, I'll say it again, he's the one that's actually making uh, the process less efficient by this memo's making the process of less course. efficient. And, and again, to, to what you said about various a leadership thing, various prosecutors around the country, you're 100% right. And here's what will happen. Some prosecutors will be bold and they'll understand that in their district, they need to still do it or they will just not believe in uh, legislation by memo and they'll still do it. And then what happens in this country, Mark, we have 
uh, a divide where people in one state or one district are being treated differently by the federal government than people in another district or another right. state simply because some political, maybe one person has political aspirations and they don't want to, they don't want to ha have any uh, adversarial relationship with the AG and file these cases. And maybe there's someone else that's at the, the older, going to retire, already was offered a judgeship or something. And they say, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to do what's right. That's a problem. That's a problem. And when we start going down this road, that's where we get inconsistency in how laws are applied, and it turns into all kinds of other troubles down the road. Let me ask you this. When you saw this video and they specifically asked, I think they, I don't know, I may even have the, the exact wording here. Yeah, I don't know. I'd waste too much time looking for it. But it was something to the effect that the guy from Texas asked Garland, basically, like, with all these people dying now of drugs in this country, how could you, why would you put this memo out? And correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, it looked to me like the Attorney General of the United States said this memo was not intended to address violent crime or significant drug cases. Mm -hmm. Did you hear him say that at the end? Yeah, that's that. That's how I took it. And quite frankly, he's so I'm not sure what what the word is. I don't trust him at all. Right. And so I'm not exactly sure what he meant. And maybe he wanted it that way. But the bottom line is this, Bill, is that what you're saying is the mandatory minimums take out this ambiguity. Mm -hmm. from the process mm -hmm. that's exactly what it's designed to do let me give everybody the the simplest the clearest example of, of a minimum that, that i can think of it's very rudimentary but i think it's totally appropriate for this discussion that's dui laws mm -hmm. so here i'm an expert in dui so in california driving under the influence is it's of the 23152 of the vehicle code there are two mm -hmm. sub subsections <laughs> A is driving under the influence of anything. So it's alcohol or marijuana or cocaine or whatever it is, you're under the influence. The B section is if your blood alcohol concentration is 0 0.08 or above, period. It doesn't matter how good you did your sobriety test. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter anything. If you tested 0 0.08 or above, you are guilty of driving under the influence with a blood alcohol mm -hmm. concentration of 0 0.08, period. Now, why is that so important? It's important because the truth is from a chemical point of view, from a physiological point of view, for instance, an alcoholic, a 50-year-old alcoholic has been drinking heavily for all of his or her life is going to handle alcohol better than a 16-year-old who got drunk for the first time. The truth is a 16-year-old might be less in control of his or her faculties on two beers than an alcoholic is on five beers. That's yep. just the reality. Yep. But to take out that ambiguity, the state of California said, look, we don't care who you are, what your background is, whatever, it doesn't matter. If you have this much in your system, you are prosecutable for this section, period. And it right. makes things more efficient. Now- when people are charged, there can be plea bargains, and that's a whole different story. That's yep. fine, but you're going to be prosecuted. 
That is the purpose of the, the laws, is it mandatory minimums. What this man has done is thrown all the ambiguity back into the system and screws so the entire efficiency aspect of, of it up. You're absolutely right. And he did it with intention. I agree. And that's that. I've never heard that example before, Mark. That's a brilliant example. That's a brilliant example of minimum mandatories. Now, imagine if I told you, hey, we're also going to now, the CHP is going to have to give some very complex uh, motor skills test. And you may even have to do some investigation to see if this person's an alcoholic, how often they've driven under the influence in the past, even if they've never been charged with it. Do they do this as a habit? Is this something where they're a major violator? Imagine if you had to prove all those other things, what effect that would have on the public safety on the roads in California. And what I'm telling people today is I've already seen the impact of this memo. This memo is making uh, people more susceptible to the dangers of fentanyl. And it's tragic that they chose the time when they did to put this out with more, with about 110,000 people dying of drugs in the United States. If right now, if you're between 18 and 34, the number one cause of death is drugs. And the attorney general has said, we're going to make it more difficult to hold drug dealers accountable. And why is that? I guess it's some ideological or political reason that they've chosen to do that. I'm saying that people need to be aware this is going on and they need to understand that. And I know I'm going to ask you to get into some other areas where you've seen this executive order legislation by memo, but people need to be aware this is going on and know that we're letting our law by allowing this to happen. We're letting our elected lawmakers off the hook. Hey, Mark, if Congress passed a law that did away with minimum mandatory sentences, so be it. I may disagree with it. Uh, you may agree with it. At least it was people that we elected and were representing us and having discussion about it, and we knew how each one voted. So if we wanted to choose to hold them accountable in the future, and we said, hey, I'm not going to vote for this person again. I don't agree with what they did. There's no... There's no ability to do that with this. This is so imagine if the attorney general had put this out and then I, as special agent in charge of the Los Angeles office, had some other executive order that I wanted to put out to my people. Imagine right. if I said, Mark, you know what? Hey, we're only going to go after marijuana cases right now. I know fentanyl's killing people here in the community, but I just want to go after marijuana cases. That just wouldn't make sense. You know, no, that wouldn't make sense. And this doesn't make sense either. This, the American people shouldn't, they shouldn't let this one slide by. It's happened a bunch in the past. It's happening more and more. I want to hear from you where you've seen this whole process of circumventing our legislative process, where you've seen it and what your thoughts are on it. Well, yeah, I gladly, Bill. And before I get into to one or two of those examples, I want to focus on, on, on Merrick Garland for a minute. It's so important because this man's a fraud. He's a fraud through and through. He's ideological. He is dishonest. And he is completely, as far, as, far as I can tell right now, he's immune from, from any, on a personal level, he's immune from any, from any attention, any calling out of his behavior. 
I don't know if he feels like he's 100% protected or if he's just so ideologically insulated that he just doesn't care. I don't know what it is, but let me go back a little bit. He was talking about this memo here that, that he wants to focus on violent crime, right? Mm -hmm. This is his focus. So we're going we're gonna to take some resources from this not that big of an issue, this fentanyl issue. It's killing tens and tens of thousands of Americans. And we want to focus more of our resources, our prosecutorial resources on, on, on violent stuff. That's where I want to I focus my energy. He's mm -hmm. a fraud. So let me go back before this. And, and people, a lot of you know about this memo, but it's really important to put it in context. So you go back a year before this memo about the minimum mandatories and go back to October 4th, 2021. Memorandum for Director of Federal Bureau Investigation. So this is from Merrick Garland, the AG going to FBI. In recent months, there has been a disturbing spike in harassment, intimidation, and threats of violence against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff who participate in the vital work of running our nation's public schools. While spirited debate about policy matters is protected under a constitution, that protection does not extend to threats of violence or efforts to intimidate individuals based on their views. Now, again, this is a one-page memo that went from Garland to director of the FBI. Now, if you remember back in 2021 and still to this day, but certainly back then, because of the shutdowns with COVID and the schools being shut down and we were wrapped up in that at the time. We had a, whatever, seven-year-old kid, six-year-old kid, five-year-old kid, and we're trying to work as chief and work for the city of Pasadena, my wife and blah, 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 and trying to get our kid educated at home through all this not nonsense. And people were angry, not only about that aspect of it, but they were angry about things being taught in school on top of that. And we know what all that stuff is. The next sentence here, or the next paragraph, which is very short. Again, this is Merrick Garland. Threats against public servants are not only illegal. Now, by the way, why would he put in there threats against public service? Threats against anybody are illegal. <laughs> Again, this man was a nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court, and thank God he didn't get that job. Right. He has the gall to put it to identify public servants. Threats against public servants are not only illegal, they run counter to our nation's core values. Those, those who dedicate their time and energy to ensuring that our, our children receive a proper, I put that in quotes, education in a safe environment deserve to be able to work there, work there without fear of their safety. First of all, he put a proper education. In whose opinion, by the way? Mm -hmm. You see, mm -hmm. these men and women, these parents who are going to the school board and say, hey, you're not giving my child a proper education. You are in doctoring my child you are confusing my child you are attacking my child you are balkanizing the children in the school based on race and and all kinds of other ridiculously meaningless characteristics but he calls it proper education he puts this memo i won't read the whole thing there's only a couple more paragraphs so you know what mm -hmm. you got to hear this the department mm -hmm. takes these incidents seriously and is committed to using its authority and resources to discourage these threats, identify them when they occur, and prosecute them when appropriate. Prosecute parents for speaking their mind, 
at school board meetings. Now, by the way, I know I'm old. I know I've been out of law enforcement for three years. But if I remember correctly, a legitimate threat against an individual, at least in California, was already illegal before Merrick Garland was probably ever in law school, let alone mm -hmm. attorney general. What in the hell business does the attorney general have in prosecuting or even investigating a local crime if it occurs? Why is the Fed involved in that? Why is he AG? And again, going back to the memo about mm -hmm. mandatory minimums, he says he wants to focus his attention and resources on violent crimes. He considers words that parents share, words of anger and dissatisfaction with school board members. I guess these are very violent and very serious. That's threats. a great point. This man is an absolute fraud. He sends his memo out and he says he's sincere to the, the various U.S. attorneys to meet he gives them an order to meet with their local and state law enforcement agencies to coordinate investigating and prosecuting these crimes. I put that word in quotes, committed by parents. He did this because, and by the way, I didn't print this memo out. I, maybe we'll put a, a link up there to it. Mm -hmm. But there was a request from the National Education Association for Merrick Garland to go after parents who had dissatisfaction, who were voicing their opinions at various school board meetings. And this man and this administration, they are subservient to these unions. And that's why this memo went out to say, hey, look, we're holding our end of the deal. You make sure you support us. It's indisputable. That's why this man did this. So I, I tell people this to let you know that this guy is a fraud through and through. He says on one hand, He's interested in violent crime, and that's why he's not prosecuting these minimum, these mandatory minimums, 40,000 pills of fentanyl, but he wants to go off parents after parents and school board meetings. What a disgrace. That is. And it's fascinating that you brought that up. So he's telling, who was the meet? Who did he direct the U.S. attorneys, the districts to meet with, Mark? The and by the, the way, the local and, and, FBI head? Yeah, this is Office of the Attorney General, mm -hmm. Washington, D.C., October 4th, 2021. Ladies mm -hmm. and gentlemen, here it is in my hot little hands. Yep. It's for everybody to see. This is says from the Attorney General Merrick Garland, subject, I'm sorry, worse too. Mem Memorandum for Director, Federal Bureau of Investigation, Director, Executive Office of U.S. Attorneys, Assistant Attorney General, Criminal Division, United States Attorneys. That's who the memo went to. Mm -hmm. And your question was, I want to make sure I answer your question. You said that he directed the U.S. attorneys to meet with, yes. was it to meet with the local FBI head? Here it is. I will tell you right there because I read it, so forth and so on. To this end, I am directing mm -hmm. the Federal Bureau of Investigation working with each United States attorney to convene meetings with federal, state, local, tribal, and territorial leaders in each federal jurisdiction district within 30 days of the issuance of this memorandum. These meetings will facilitate the discussion of strategies for addressing threats against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff, and will open dedicated lines of communication for threat reporting, assessment, and response. 
Yeah, but yeah, so so that's but yet he says he needs to be more efficient and focus on violent crime. It yes. just doesn't add up. The things it he not says just don't add up. It's troubling. I think people have to and you know what? You know why this you know why this happens, Mark? Part of why this happens is because our elected people in Congress have been more ineffective in the past, I don't know, five years than ever before. And I see that I, I can understand on the one hand the frustration of the executive branch where they say, hey, laws are not keeping up with keeping up with society, so they decide to act on their own. But we can't have that. No, we cannot we have that. We can't have that. We can't let our our legislative branch off the hook. We have to demand that they actually create laws and get laws through to make these changes. And guess what? People aren't going to support that. People, I don't no. think people are going to support that. Well, this is, Bill, this is exactly right. That's what the legislature is there for. You laid it out very clearly at the beginning of this podcast, three branches of government. This all goes to the increasing size and complexity of the administrative state. We have hundreds now, hundreds. I think at the founding of this country, we had four or six or eight federal agencies, something like that, mm -hmm. maybe. Mm -hmm. And now we have literally hundreds and they're run by bureaucrats. They're run by appointees of various administrations, and many of them for life, and they make up their own rules literally within these. And they justify it. They extrapolate. Well, we were told to enforce XYZ law, and then they go ahead and add on all these different procedures and methods by which they enforce it, which become laws in of themselves. Let me, we, we talked about yeah. the broader picture here. I want to talk about the, this administrative state and how insidious this is. So, so talk about executive orders. In executive orders, it's in the Constitution. It was a very narrow thing. The first president, George Washington, actually used a couple of, I think, four executive orders in his entire eight years as president, something like that. But a very few minimum, but very few. What are the most famous executive orders? And again, this goes to the point of being. Uh, super legal. In other words, outside of the legislative process. So one of the most famous executive orders, you don't know by number, most people actually know it by substance and by action. Mm -hmm. And that was the internment of hundreds of thousands, mm -hmm. a couple hundred thousand Japanese in, yep. in World War II, Japanese Americans, Americans, right? American citizens that for all intents and purposes were put in prison. They were put in mm -hmm. barracks from 1942 until the end of the war, 1945, by the stroke of a pen from Franklin Delano Roosevelt. There was no law passed. There was certainly nothing in the Constitution that would allow this. But by executive order, he uprooted people, American citizens, from their homes, their businesses, and he put them in internment camps. By the way, I visited one of those in California. If you haven't been, go to one. But it, it's amazing. This is, I said, one of the most famous ones, but it's only one of many. Go ahead, how, many how many people was that, Mark? How many people I were I think, you know what, I looked it up. I, oh, you know what? It was 125,000. So, so, so imagine that by the stroke of a pen. Yes. By the stroke of a pen, 100 or over 100,000 people were yep. incarcerated. Yes. Without right. any legislative input whatsoever. No, no do, and, and also no, no, no due process. No due process. Right. And clearly in violation of the Constitution. There's, mm -hmm. By the way, 
it's important for people to understand. It doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you may be on. It doesn't matter what your maybe your philosophies about certain things are. I'll give you another example. In other words, just because an executive order might align with your philosophical mm -hmm. beliefs, this is a good it point. Still doesn't make it right. Correct. Look, there were things as a law enforcement officer, and I'm not talking about beating people up. I'm just talking about. I'm just talking about laws that I would like to see or a way that people were investigated or things like there were a lot of things I thought hi this would be a much better way to do it blah, blah, or I wish we could do this or wish we could represent for that but I couldn't because it was outside of the law yep it didn't mean I agreed with everything it's just I was sworn to uphold the law it doesn't matter if you're the president or if you're a little patrol officer like I was or it doesn't matter any place in between the law is supposed to be consistent for everybody so go back to 1863. Mm -hmm. There was a little skirmish in a town called Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah, there was. Right? <laughs> it was the largest battle in the Civil War. More men died over a three-day period in that than any other battle in the Civil War. By the way, the single bloodiest day was Antietam, but, Antietam, but the single mm -hmm. bloodiest battle over three days was Gettysburg. So after the Union won that battle, months later, the cemetery of Gettysburg is dedicated. And in that time frame, Abraham Lincoln, he delivers what is the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm -hmm. He deemed that all slaves in the Southern states were now free. It's a great thing morally. It's a great thing, he said. Their slaves are free from this point on. They're no longer subject to human slavery, for lack of a better mm -hmm. word. Mm -hmm. That was executive order number 95. However, it was completely and wholly unconstitutional, mm -hmm. even though I agree with it. I support right. it morally, ethically. And he did that for a reason. He waited until he knew that the tide of war had turned in the favor of the Union to make sure politically he would have all the momentum to enforce that in a political sense, the proclamation. So the point is, ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't matter if you're for something or against something or whatever. It has to be done per the Constitution. Now, again, the Union, thank God, went on to, to win the war. Later on, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments were passed. And in those, the Executive Order 95 actually became codified in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. It was the wrong direction, but it did become codified. But let me tell you about a brand new Executive Order. Let me tell you about a brand new Executive Order. Executive Order 14019. Remember the first one? Okay, this is the 14,000, 19th. Executive order by the Biden administration. Biden signed executive order 14019 in March 2021, calling for every federal agency to promote voter registration and voter participation and expand access to accurate election information. Don't worry, we're assured that this nonpartisan, despite the obvious questions it raises about whether the executive branch might try to tip the scales for uh, electoral gain. However, the Biden administration hasn't been responsive to multiple requests over the last year. And again, this is two years ago. 
from more than 50 House Republicans inquiring about the nature of this voter participation push. In October, now this is two years, in October, the Department of Justice claimed presidential communication privilege in federal court to dodge the release of records about how the order is being implemented, arguing that the release of some of the records could cause public confusion. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot more here. I'm not going to get into because I want to make sure we cover everything, Bill, you want to talk about. But this is an executive order. This comes from one person. By the way, the executive branch is not a thousand people. It's not 20 people. It's not two people. The executive branch is one person. That is the president of the United States. It's the only person in the executive branch. He ordered this. And this directs federal agencies to partner with local groups and organizations to pr promote voting. In short, I'm going to read this to you real quick. Federal executive agencies, which have no business engaging in voter registration or mobilization efforts as the executive order directs, will surely exceed the scope of their authority under federal law. Read the October letter. This is a, a letter from the Republicans in 2022. Moreover, in carrying out this executive order, employees of these agencies will likely violate other laws, such as the Hatch yeah. Act. That's what I was thinking this whole time that you were talking. I'm like, what about the, the Hatch Act? The Hatch Act. We yeah. talk about that real quick. Designed to keep federal agencies led by political appointees from engaging in political activities to benefit one political party over the other. Now, I'm going to stop. I have page in the pages. I won't read more. Oh, no. Well, I, would love, I, I would love for you to read more, but listen, the, let me talk the, about the, yeah, go the Hatch Act. The Hatch Act. Go. So anytime, whenever, so, so as the head of a federal agency here in Los Angeles, there are often times when a particular state law was up for debate or a particular federal law was up for debate. And someone would hold, want to hold a press conference or they would want me, they would say, hey, can you write a letter supporting this? Or how do you feel about that? I was prohibited by law for giving my opinion on that. Or even if, Mark, if I was going to participate at a press conference where there was an elected official, they would even ask such things as, where are we in the election cycle with this person? Is this person up for re-election in the next couple months? And if the answer was yes, they would say, no, don't attend. Because just the perception that uh, a federal law enforcement head was there at an event with this person and they were up for election, that could be per perceived by people as support for that candidate. As an endorsement. As an endorsement. And of course, I follow the rules. I follow the rules. But then I see, and I had no idea, I, I hadn't heard about that 019 executive order until right now. I had no idea that was even out there. For the government to then try to say that it would cause public confusion if they released the... Uh, no, my public... Uh, it's causing personal confusion why they would be afraid to actually release that information. That's that doesn't make sense to me. And really, again, as the leader of a federal law enforcement head, I don't know, we had probably close to 800 employees. I don't understand what steps we would take that could possibly be legal under federal law to, to get involved in that in that genre of activity of, of promoting 
of encouraging voter participation at something. That sounds some, like something incredibly dangerous. If anyone had come to me and said, hey, we want to do this in our office, um, I would have said no, and or I would have consulted the lawyer that we have in our office, and he or she would have said no. Like, it yep. just wouldn't happen. So I don't understand how, uh, by the stroke of a pen, they can they can make these proclamations. Well, when you hit on something really important there when you said it, uh, about the administration won't release communications about this executive order because we don't want to confuse the public. Number one, what the, the public is confused by is up to the public. Those are not classified or privileged documents. Well, they're claiming they're privileged documents, but mm -hmm. that's up to me. Like you said, mm -hmm. I'm confused by what the hell the federal government's doing this in the first place for. Number two, let me be confused. Let me be the, let me be the, uh, let me figure out my own disinformation and come to my own conclusions. I'm a mm -hmm. big enough boy. This shows absolute contempt for the public. No, let us go ahead and legislate by executive order. Let me legislate by edict. Let me legislate by stroke of pen. And like you said earlier, Bill, you don't have to worry about electing or not electing your representatives. We'll do everything for you because we're the masterminds here in this given administration. Number two, on a constitutional level, mm -hmm. Forget about executive orders, so to speak, per se. The Constitution is could not be more clear. The federal government has zero, I'm not talking 10%, it has zero, zero business in local elections. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's up to the states about how to run their elections outside, of course, of any violation of the Constitution when it comes to voting rights, discrimination, things like that. Those are federal laws. But implementing the uh, voting procedures and getting out information about uh, voting availability and polling areas and things like this, it's totally up to the states. The federal government has no business at all in promoting voting mm -hmm. any place and this executive order, in other words, it's super legal, it's beyond the legislative process, and it violates the Constitution, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I'm not a lawyer. I, I'm, not a, I'm not a legal scholar. I was never in the Supreme Court. But my God, I can read the Constitution, and I can read exactly what this executive order says. By the way, update. Can I point this out here for you, too? Update here. This was from uh, June of this year. June of 2023, the title is Diffuse Biden's Election Takeover Bomb. And this is specifically about, in one of his first acts after taking office, Biden signed Executive Order 14019 titled Promoting Access to Voting. The order went even further by requiring agencies, I skipped something obviously, mm -hmm. allowing agencies, third-party groups, hand selected by the White House to engage in voter registration activities on federal agency premises. It doesn't get any more violation of the Hatch Act. To date, the administration, by the way, again, this is June 22nd of 2023, this article, but this article is from, I like to give the props, props out. I want to make sure here, I should have been a little more prepared, but that's me with all my paperwork. Mm -hmm. This was, I wrote it down someplace. I'll get it in a minute. Oh, 
I'll get it for you in a minute. To date, the administration has refused to disclose the full details of the agency's plan to carry out this order, nor has it disclosed which groups the White House has approved for special access and taxpayer-funded resources to carry out their mission. Now, don't forget, you're in uh, a federal facility, because you said on federal property. Correct. That's what okay, the you're on right federal here. property. So that means that it's on federal time. So the government's actually paying people to be there, right? The government's yes. paying people to be there on that time. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. And but that's just beyond me. I, I, that's to me, that would be a clear Hatch Act violation that would, we would never be, if that was proposed at the local level, if we said we were going to do something like that would never, ever be allowed. hundred percent. By the way, the author is Stuart Whitson, just so you know, W H I T S O N June 22nd, 23rd. I can find it. That's the author of this article here. Just so you know, I give props. And when I printed out, it cut off the title of the publication, but mm -hmm. we know it's there. So, but this, and it goes on and on, um, and about Congress trying to delve into this and, and get some answers and the administration's pushing back, but this shows, this goes all the way back to the original memo and the original, very clear and narrow, important topic you're talking about mm -hmm. with the attorney general circumventing Congress. These are multiple examples of this bill, and it is dangerous. This not only is part of the administrative state, it builds, it grows and strengthens the administrative state, and it puts a wall behind the citizen and the people that are supposed to represent them. We have no control, like just like you said, we can't get we can't get rid of these bureaucrats. We don't no. elect them. We can't unelect them. We can't campaign for or against them. They are protected. And this is a way to circumvent the will of the people. And just so anybody, please try to be a little bit honest here. This administration, this president uses executive order 14019 to go in and to promote voting and with federal agency resources. If another president, and I won't mention any names, but if another president had done that, the federal charges, federal, federal charges. Yeah. Be honest. If I you mean, are that... listening to this, you're watching, just try for five seconds to be honest with yourself. And if another president who you may not like as much as the current president did the exact same thing, would you be nonchalant and just blow it off? By the way, I would be just as angry if another yep. president did it as yep. this one, because yep. I believe in the rule of law. Like Bill does, mm -hmm. we believe in the rule of law just for these reasons to take out the personalities and individual ideologies and keep it at least with some, some level of control of the typical citizen like Bill and myself. Mark, I'd like to, I think that wraps it up good. I'd like to close with this. I'd like to say this is both parties doing this. We could, yeah, it is both parties doing it. It's, uh, I think, one thing that you touched on earlier that sometimes isn't included in this issue is just how big government has gotten, how big the executive branch has gotten. And I think sometimes this mechanism has been used because government's gotten so big. So, so it's, government's become unable to be nimble and react and change and actually get things done. Because of that, 
more and more times we're seeing administrative law and policy memo change laws that are on the books and create new laws. And as you pointed out now, violate the Constitution. If it's both sides doing it, people need to educate themselves on it. As people, we should not tolerate this. We should force our politicians, our elected people in the legislative branch, force them to act. And if we want to change laws and do these things, force it to come from that side of the House instead of by the, the swipe of a pen, the same swipe of a pen that incarcerated over 100,000 people in the 1940s. Thanks, Mark, for sharing your insight today. We'll see everybody next time on the Truth Nation podcast. God bless you, Bill. God bless you, everybody.